Now please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the Gospel of Luke. Today as we continue uh, our studies through the Gospel of Luke, we come uh, to the end of a major section in this Gospel. We are in chapter 19 today, verses 1 through 10, reading a familiar story and studying the story of Zacchaeus as uh, as sort of an aside that has nothing to do with much of anything else. Zacchaeus' name showed up in our Old Testament reading today in the book of Nehemiah there, uh, in the list of returned exiles, it shown up as the name Zakkai. Uh, that is the Hebrew base uh, for which it would be translated into the, into the Greek Zacchaeus. It's a Hebrew word that names righteous or pure. Uh, an interesting tidbit, uh, though it doesn't factor much into what we know of Zacchaeus in the passage that we're going to be reading today. But we, we know a little bit about Zacchaeus. We're familiar with the story. We're familiar with the songs about this story. And I promise I will try not to sing uh, about Zacchaeus, that wee little man. But we are today in, uh, in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And you can find that on most ESVs on page 878. Luke chapter 19, reading and studying together verses 1 through 10 today. And before we read this together, join me again uh, in a word of prayer, seeking God's blessing on our study together. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Lord, this is your word and we are your people. So we pray that by your spirit you would so help us to receive with meekness your word that you would cause it to be implanted in our hearts, that it would bear a harvest of faithfulness and righteousness unto eternal life in Jesus Christ. Keep us, O Lord, as we read this passage and help us to see our Savior, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 19, beginning to read in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it as we read and study it together today. Nine years ago, nine years ago this June, Zeke the box turtle escaped from his home in Beverly, Massachusetts, and he went on a month-long romp through the great outdoors. Uh, romp probably isn't the best word for whatever it is that, that turtles do, but he was out there. Zeke was out there just the same. He was living off the land, off the grid. He was he's fending for himself. He was driving his owners sick with worry. You see, Zeke was the beloved pet of Bob and Debbie Young, and he had been a part of their home for 31 years. 
And when Zeke went missing, they went to great lengths to find him. They took out ads uh, in the local newspaper in Beverly. They put up signs on the telephone poles. They went so far as to hire a rescue team that came with a dog that is trained to sniff out reptiles. Did you know that there are dogs? Well, now you know. Dogs trained to sniff out reptiles. And no one could find poor Zeke. No one could find Zeke until one day their neighbor, Tom, was in his backyard and noticed his golden retriever sniffing around a lump in the grass. Sure enough, it was Zeke. A month gone and just about a thousand feet from where he started. And uh, when, uh, when neighbor Tom was interviewed by the Boston Globe, Tom said, it was easy pickings. He was just sitting there on the lawn, just waiting to be found. And we are so familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, that we expect it to be just like Zeke the turtle all over again. Easy pickings. He's there, just, just waiting to be found, really not far from home at all. And we know how the story goes. We know that at any moment we expect Jesus to stand under that sycamore tree and wag his finger, Zacchaeus, you come down. But really, every detail of this passage is meant to show us that, that Zacchaeus is pretty far from home. In fact, he's the kind of person that no one would have expected. He is the least likely candidate as one who would be brought into the kingdom of God. This is not a story about being in the right place to be found by Jesus. This is a story about the lengths that Jesus goes to to call sinners to himself. That's what he says. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The account of Zacchaeus is meant to give, to give us hope for the unlikely sinners. It's meant to make us expect the unexpected from Jesus. It begins with a lesson that you might be surprised by the people who are interested in Jesus. That's our first point, that you might be surprised at the people who are interested in Jesus. The text tells us that in this town of Jericho, on the way up to Jerusalem, there's Jesus traveling with his apostles with his disciples, and there lived a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we're told, was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and those are two big strikes against this wee little man. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now remember, we need to, we need to view Zacchaeus through first century eyes here. We need to remember that tax collector, as it often shows up in the scriptures, is, is synonymous with a thief, with uh, with an extortioner, with, with a traitor of the Jewish people. For good reason, actually. Uh, interesting tidbit about the Roman tax system. There were some taxes, according to Roman law, that were fixed across the board, that were imposed universally on every resident of the Roman Empire, poll taxes, head taxes, that, that were given to everybody just as a privilege for living under the thumb of Caesar. But there were other taxes, uh, taxes on goods and trade and merchandise, taxes like... Zacchaeus would have collected, and they were not fixed at all. In fact, Rome used to auction off the right to collect taxes in various regions to whoever could have given them the highest bid. And so, if, if Bikri, uh, one Jewish tax collector, if Bikri told the Romans that in Jericho next year I can get you two talents of silver from the people, that's what my taxing can get you. And, and along came Hananiah and said, well, I can squeeze three talents of silver out of the people. Well, Hananiah got the contract. Romans didn't care how, how much the people were oppressed. They only cared that they got what was promised, and the more the better. 
And so when Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, it's likely that, that he was the one who actually had the contract, who, who was the one dealing with the Romans, who was making the calculation, how far can I press my fellow countrymen before there's a revolt, before there's real trouble on our hands here in Jericho. He'd probably had men like, like Levi doing the actual tax collecting day by day, and, and he was overseeing all of the operations. So one commentator said that Zacchaeus was probably like a, uh, the head of a Jericho tax cartel. Another one said he was the, the peak, the pinnacle of a pyramid scheme. And you don't get into positions like that overnight. In fact, this is what we need to, to recognize about Zacchaeus. We need to remember that he is not a man who is just trying on a few sins to see how they fit. He was a man who probably had an entire lifetime of experience in extortion. He was a hard-bitten man who is set in the ways of sin. He's a person for whom cheating and thieving was as easy as strapping on his sandals in the morning. This is not the kind of sinner that anybody expected to change, not the kind of sinner that anybody would be expected to, to think that he was interested in uh, in repentance and reformation in religion. Now, second, we're told that he's rich. That's an understatement. Leon Morris says that in this place and with this position, with this occupation, he couldn't be anything but rich. In the whole province of Judea, there were three places where taxes were mainly collected. They were collected here in Jericho, and they were collected in Jerusalem, and they were connect, collected in Capernaum. But Jericho was important. It was special because it sat on the major east-west trade route between the province of Judea and the province uh, across the Jordan River, Perea, and, and likewise to, to Babylon, to the east, to all of the spice trading, everything that was beyond Judea, it almost all of it came through Jericho. And Jericho was also known for its balsam groves, for its rich aromatic gum, for, for its, uh, its lush palm forest. It was this beautiful little entrepreneurial oasis sitting right there on the edge of the desert. So when Luke says that Zacchaeus was rich, we should read that in capital letters. He was loaded. He was filthy rich with a capital filthy. Now don't forget how recently Jesus has warned us. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Zacchaeus was like so many other affluent people. His hands were so full of the wonderful things of this world that he had no need and he had no room, he thought, to hold on to God's promises. He wasn't the kind of person you'd expect to be interested in the gospel, but Zacchaeus wanted to know more about Jesus. We have no idea what, what it was that attracted Zacchaeus to Jesus at first. We don't know what he'd, he'd heard, perhaps, from some of his publican friends about uh, this prophet who everyone said was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. We have no idea if it was anything more than curiosity, but we know that Zacchaeus wanted to know more, and we know that in order to get closer to Jesus, to see what kind of a person he was, there were obstacles that stood before him, obstacles that had to be overcome. That's a familiar story in the, in the recent chapter that we've read, isn't it? First, in, in chapter 18, we read about parents who were rebuked by the disciples because they were trying to bring their babies to Jesus for a blessing. 
And then we read about blind Bartimaeus who had to shout above the crowd for mercy from the son of David. And now Zacchaeus. And he can't make his way through this wall of bodies that stood between him and the Savior. It would have been different, I suppose, for for anybody else of his status, of his sort of level in society. Leaders and and elders and and wealthy men, businessmen, could have had a a pretty easy audience with Jesus because anybody else, for anyone else, the the crowd would have parted and and let him through and, and let him see Jesus, but not for Zacchaeus. Uh, There was probably a a twinge of satisfaction when the people edged him out of the parade and pretended not to notice him. Well, that's when he did what he's famous for. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I said I wasn't going to sing it. I didn't say I wasn't going to quote it. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. and that, That is not a dignified thing to do, by the way. Men in this culture did not climb trees full stop. It didn't happen, especially not men who were, uh, who were established men, men who were wealthy men, men with any shred of, of dignity, any, any sense of gravitas at all, any self-respect. Men did not climb trees. And it's so unexpected that it's almost comical. There is this rich little man in fine twisted linen and he's sitting on a limb. Maybe you imagine him swinging his feet, watching it all go by like a child watching a circus parade. And he's up there just because he wants to know more about Jesus. He wanted to see who he was. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that you might be surprised at the people who are interested in Jesus. As we live in the world, most of us develop what we think, what we think is a pretty good sense of of who might be receptive to the gospel and who might not. Often what that translates to is is a sense, uh, an all-too-narrow view that that some people are pretty close to Christ already and others are beyond the reach of the gospel. And I bet you can think of people in your own life, people that you know, people that you encounter, that you can fit them into those two categories and you sort of hedge your bets when it comes time to speak about the gospel and to speak about your faith. Who is it in in your mind, in in your life, that fits into that category of of unreachable, of beyond the reach of the gospel, would never in a million years be interested in Jesus? Is it the the CEO of your company and and his life seems so put together, he's got everything he needs? Is it that politician that you find yourself praying against because even though you know you should, you can't bring yourself to pray for them? Because they're so far on the other side of the aisle that you can't even begin. Maybe it is is that cousin, that human train wreck who shows up at family functions. And every time she's there, she she drags another drama behind her in her wake. And you, you know exactly every time you see her the kinds of things you're going to hear. Maybe it's the neighbors that you see just every once in a while. You've never had more than a a surface-level conversation with them. You don't know anything about their faith or what they believe or, or the things that are important to them, but you know that every time you leave for church, they see, you see them out there, and sometimes they're raking, some, sometimes they're running. Sometimes they're just hanging out, and life looks pretty good. It looks at least as good as, as anybody else in the block who, uh, who doesn't know Christ, who lives without him, and, and they probably don't want to hear what you have to say about Jesus 
anyway, and you sort of, you, you hedge your bet, and you put them in the category. Well, Phil Riken says, Zacchaeus' curiosity is a reminder that some of the people who are secretly interested in Jesus are people we would never expect to be interested in all. And you might never know until you speak to them. You may never know that they're, they're sitting in a proverbial tree and they're watching your life and they're watching your witness and they're waiting to see if there's any substance to this Christianity that they've heard about. And you never know that maybe they're watching you to see because they want to know more about who Jesus is. You might be surprised at the people who are interested in Jesus. You might also be surprised by the people Jesus associates with. Now, despite all our delight in, in watching Zacchaeus climb this tree, Luke's focus in this passage really is on the initiative that Jesus takes to call sinners to salvation. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. When you read that verse, don't miss that must. I must Stay at your house today. Now, now that word must in the Greek, I have to tell you, is a completely unremarkable word. <laughs> There's nothing special about that word at all. It shows up all over the place. It's just this little tiny word, this, this little modal verb that, that implies a necessity. It's a, it's a need. I, I need to. I have to. I must. I'm obliged to. That's what it means. And it shows up all sorts of contexts all over the New Testament. There's nothing fancy or special about that word. But what's special is that when Jesus applies that little word to himself, he almost always applies it to the things that are necessary for fulfilling the gospel. He uses it in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. I must, he says. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. So it is here. Come down, Zacchaeus. I must stay at your house today. It is a divine necessity. It's the appointment that Jesus came to Jericho to keep. And even though Zacchaeus thinks and and he feels and he acts like somebody who is curious about Jesus. When he finally meets him, he finds that Christ has been looking for him all along. And Jesus knew his name long before they ever met. And he stops along the way and he calls him to come down. And it's the only place we see it anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus invites himself to be the guest in another person's home. I must stay at your house today. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not, not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. That could have been Zacchaeus' hymn. Written from his experience with Jesus Christ, and that is your hymn as well. If you've been called to faith in the Lord, 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what salvation is about. 
It's about proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you. And here with Zacchaeus, this is a declaration of the initiative that Jesus takes to call sinners to himself. And it is so wonderful, it is so glorious when we see it that sometimes we forget how often Jesus calls sinners that nobody would have expected. He calls fishermen to be the founders of his church. He calls a persecuting Pharisee to become a preacher to the Gentiles. He calls the foolish and the downtrodden and the outcasts of the world. Jesus calls the weak and the ignorant and the things that are not to put to shame the things that are. God calls the destitute poor of the global south right now in droves, in massive numbers, to cling to him in simple faith. And he does it while the affluent, educated western world is taking the pursuit of God and chucking it into the waste bin and saying, we don't need this anymore. And it has nothing to do with with who we think deserves salvation or who has attained a certain level. It has to do with God's choice, God's call for those he desires. And sometimes God calls the godless wretches in such a way that it scandalizes all of the outwardly moral people who watch it happen. That's what happened with Zacchaeus. When Jesus went to be a guest in his house, when he went under his roof, nobody was moved to compassion. Nobody said, that Jesus, he's great. He really does what we should be. He's setting an example for us that we ought to follow. Nobody did that. They rolled their eyes and they shook their heads. They said, Zacchaeus, really? Ugh. That was the reaction. Verse, verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. They didn't grumble at Zacchaeus. They'd already written him off. They had nothing else to do with him. They didn't care what he did or what happened to him. They're grumbling about Jesus. He's gone to be the guest in the home of a man who is a sinner. That's how it often happens. You read the Gospels and you see Jesus all the time taking heat for the people he chooses to hang out with. Now, people were always disappointed with Jesus' companions. And they were disappointed because they assumed that God is, is for some kinds of people and he ought to be against other kinds of people. They were disappointed because they assumed that they could tell the difference. They could bring out their categories and understand the sinners who had potential and the sinners who were hopeless. And the same thing happens in nice, clean-cut, put-together suburban churches. Now, we have our categories. We have our mental categories of those people. They're sinners, but they're, they're almost Christian. They're pretty clean. They're... They're mostly clean, at least, and, and they're the people that we almost expect someday to be converted and to grow in their faith and probably become elders. They're great. These people have all the makings of, of wonderful leaders in the church, and then there are the other ones, and we're excited. Anytime somebody comes to the Lord, anytime somebody is converted and comes to faith and repentance, but there are people that we think that if they were to come to the Lord, probably they should sit in the back row somewhere so they can't do too much damage. I mean, we, we want, we'd love to see the meth addicts in Lowell and the prostitutes in Boston and, and the abortion doctors in Worcester come to the Lord, but would we be comfortable if they came here to do it? I mean, more to the point, are we even in a church that that, that is a question we have to take seriously? 
Or is it the sort of thing that shows up in sermons and we say, oh, yes, yes, the drug addicts and the abortion doctors, and, and we can put it out of our mind because it had never happened here, right? Is it even something we have to be worried about? Well, Zacchaeus is a challenge not to limit who we think God might be interested in. Russell Moore put it well. He said the next Billy Graham might be a drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. You see, the point of this passage is to show us that we might be surprised at some of the people who are interested in Jesus. And we might even be surprised at some of the people Jesus chooses to associate with, but we should never be surprised when Christ brings salvation to a sinner. That's where it's all leading. We should never be surprised when Jesus brings salvation to a sinner. You know, while the crowds were outside grumbling about Jesus' dinner company, something amazing was happening inside Zacchaeus' home. We don't know what Jesus said. We don't know what he did to leave such an impression on him, but we know that there was a change. We know that Zacchaeus experienced the gift of new birth. He experienced that whole life revolution, that, that total life transformation, that, that conversion that is impossible to attribute to human achievement. Don't forget the rich young ruler. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Well, who then can be saved? Well, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. And Zacchaeus is proof. That's why he's here. That's why Luke records this as proof that God can do the impossible. Oh, the rich young ruler went away sad. He could not imagine his life without all of his wretched, rotting, damnable stuff. And I mean that in the biblical sense, that for the sake of holding on to the things of this life, the rich young ruler was damned forever. And Zacchaeus, well, he's a changed man. What the rich young ruler refused to do, even under compulsion, even when Christ told him what he needed to do, he refused, but Zacchaeus offers it willingly. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He's a changed man. And Jesus declares that salvation has come to the home of Zacchaeus. I know I'm pressing your patience, but there are, there are a few misconceptions that we need to clear up in this passage. Two, to be exact. Two misconceptions about uh, this statement about uh, salvation coming to Zacchaeus. The first misconception is that Zacchaeus seems to get off pretty easy. Remember, the ruler was called to give away everything he had, all his possessions, and give it to the poor and come and follow Jesus, but Zacchaeus only goes halvesies. And so what's up with this double standard? Why doesn't Zacchaeus go all the way? Well, don't forget the order of operations here, folks. I give 
half of my possessions away to the poor because with the other half, he still has to make restitution fourfold for everyone that he has that he has wronged. And again, Leon Morris tells us that considering the way he made his money, that is not going to be a short list. All right, so if he follows through on this repayment plan, it's not going to be long before all of it is gone. Okay, so he doesn't get off easier than the rich young ruler. But the second misconception is that Zacchaeus has somehow worked his way into salvation. That might be what some people come away with here. And it almost seems that way because in one breath, Zacchaeus makes this, this wonderful statement of intention to charity. And in the next breath, Jesus says, well, there you go, salvation, there it is. That's what it looks like. And it sure looks like peace with God is being bought with good works or, or at least good intentions. But that is not what's happening. And we know that's not what's happening because, that's, uh, because of what Jesus says in verse 9. Verse 9, look at it. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. He's a son of Abraham. Now, there are many who are sons of Abraham, the daughters of Abraham. There is a woman who was bent over with the disabling spirit. She was a daughter of Abraham, kept bound by Satan, Jesus said. But it looks like a small thing. But Jesus is making a, a really important statement here at a very important juncture in Luke's gospel. I've already mentioned, but, but this is the close of this major section. Lord willing, next week we're going to look together in verse 11, and Jesus and his disciples, you'll see, will be near to Jerusalem. That's where he's been headed for 10 chapters, and that means that this conversation with Zacchaeus will put the benediction on Jesus' ministry through Galilee and Judea. This is the end. This is the close of all of his wandering and preaching and proclaiming good news all throughout the place where, where God had put his people. But that ministry began back in chapter 4 with the first proclamation of the gospel. It stretched throughout all these chapters down to these verses. We've been looking at it for three years now. It stretches all the way down to this wee little man in a tree. And along the way, Jesus is presenting the good news of God's kingdom. And he's calling sinners to faith and to repentance. For the majority of our time in Luke's gospel, this is the section we have been in. But directly before this section... Luke tells us how God prepared his people to receive this ministry. He tells us about how he, he got them ready through the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And do you remember what John said to the crowds who came to him? Turn with me there to, to Luke chapter 3. Right before the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Luke chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 7. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Well, there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between sons of Abraham and sons of Abraham. There's a difference between uh, sons according to the flesh and sons according to the faith. And John is telling us that the Lord is able to make for himself faithful followers from lifeless stones if that's what he wants to do. 
He's able to call the weak and the foolish and the things that are not to shame the things that are. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And the Lord is able to make saints out of sinners and sons out of stones. And John says you'll recognize that God is doing that, that he's doing his unique work when? When you see people bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, just out of curiosity, what do you suppose it looks like when, uh, when tax collectors bear fruit in keeping with repentance? How would you know if, uh, if an extortioner became a son of Abraham? I'll keep reading in, in, in Luke chapter 3. Picking up in verse 12, tax collectors also came out to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. That's what repentance looks like. If you happen to be a tax collector, repentance is as simple, it is as significant as fairness. It's as simple and significant as equity. Perhaps it looks like voluntary restitution. It looks like a new life by the power of God. And that's when you realize that this passage about Zacchaeus isn't so much about Zacchaeus at all. It's about Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. It's about the way that Christ came, as he said he did, to seek and to save the lost. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He came to send out his spirit as the giver of life. He came to preach the gospel of forgiveness through his blood and and hope of life through his death. He came to seek unsuspecting sinners and to make them saints to the glory of God the Father. That's what he came to do, and that's what he's still doing now. So even though sometimes you may be surprised at the people who are interested in Jesus, and even though sometimes you may be surprised at the people that Jesus chooses to associate with, you should never be surprised when Jesus brings salvation to a sinner. That's what he does. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zacchaeus. It was a reminder that we all, lost in sin, were called by you. And it is a call also to those who may still be lost that you are calling, that you are drawing sinners to yourself, that you are working through Christ and through your gospel to bring people home. Help us, O Lord, to have eyes of faith and hearts to believe in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.